0: This podcast hopes to take it a step further and highlight criminal justice reform on a national level. Everyday Injustice. Today on Everyday Injustice, we have Mimi Roca, who is running for DA in Westchester County in New York. She's a former assistant US attorney in the Southern District of New York from 2001 to 2017. Welcome to our show, Mimi.
1: Thank you. Thanks for having me.
0: So uh, tell us a bit about your background and and why it is you decided to run for DA.
1: Sure. So um, as you mentioned, I was a uh, assistant United States attorney, a federal prosecutor in uh, what's called the Southern District of New York, which is uh, here in New York, it encompasses both uh, New York City, Manhattan, as well as uh, some of the outer uh, counties like Westchester County, where I am right now. Uh, I did that for 16 and a half years. Uh, So I started back in 2001, actually, just before the 9-11 attacks and uh, was served until uh, the fall of 2017. So I served under several different uh, presidents and attorney generals and uh, U.S. attorneys. And absolutely loved my experience as a prosecutor. Um, I worked my way up uh, to become chief of what was called the organized crime unit uh, in Manhattan, and uh, you know did organized crime work myself. Supervised uh, many people doing it. Good old-fashioned uh, type of uh, mafia cases that you see on you know The Sopranos and Goodfellas and. Of that, but also other kinds of cases that people may not think of as falling under that rubric, which includes human trafficking, um, sex trafficking, uh, labor racketeering, uh, even uh, public corruption cases that uh, would sometimes fall in that, um, as well as uh, immigration smuggling cases, uh, those, you know, so so a wide range of cases. Um, In 2012, I was honored to be appointed. By then, U.S. Attorney Pre Barra um, to head up what's called the White Plains Division of the Southern District, which is the uh, sort of satellite office that handles crimes, investigations, and uh, law enforcement relationships for the Department of Justice in the counties uh, north of the city. So, Westchester, <clears throat> excuse me, Westchester, Putnam, Rockland County, uh, Dutchess, Orange, uh, the 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 sort of counties closest to, but surrounding uh, New York City. And I did that for five and a half years. So I really was a leader in law enforcement here in Westchester, got to work with the Westchester DA's office with law enforcement at federal, state, county, uh, and local levels. And, um, you know, now the next step for me really uh, is, I think, to be the district attorney and bring some of the... Um, values that, that I learned and, and practiced uh, as a prosecutor to the DA's office. Namely, the idea that being a prosecutor is not just about seeking prosecutions. Obviously, that is part of the job, but it is also about trying to do justice and what that means, and really trying to um, I, I sort of live by as a prosecutor the, the saying. Uh, the mantra of my mentor, Preparara, which is to try to do the right thing in the right way for the right reasons. So that's kind of a, a broad <laughs> overview. Um, but obviously, we can get into you know some more specifics of what I hope to do and, and change in the office.
0: So what does the race look like at this point?
1: So I uh, am running against an incumbent. Uh, an incumbent Democrat. So we have a, a primary, uh, which is happening June 23rd. Uh, the current incumbent is uh, a one-term incumbent. He's been there for you know three and a half years. Um, and actually, he and I overlapped for a period of time. When I was chief of the White Plains Division for the Southern District, he became the district attorney. And I had worked closely with the prior district attorney, Janet DiFiore, who is now the chief judge uh, for New York State. Um, and when she stepped down to become the chief judge, uh, the current DA Anthony Scarpino, um, took office and we did overlap for about nine months. And, um, you know, it was a very different relationship. I had had a very, uh, good, uh, and collaborative relationship with, uh, with, uh, Judge DiFiore's office. And, and I, I found that that was much harder to do with the current VA. So, um. You know, I announced my candidacy in December. Uh, we had a, there was a, a Democratic Party convention in January uh, where one would have expected the incumbent, who's been kind of a fixture uh, in party politics here in Westchester for about 30 years. I mean, he's, he's really, that's what he's done his whole life, is, is run for uh, office at various different levels. Uh, you would have expected him to kind of sweep the convention. But in fact, he only won the convention by two percentage points, which I think really kind of shocked the political establishment here. Um, and so we've had great momentum since then uh, with with my campaign, even notwithstanding obvious, uh, you know, changes and hurdles given, given the COVID crisis. But um, I've had amazing endorsements, both from elected officials, And from groups that, uh, you know, really, I think, uh, really have honored me and and are meaningful, like the Working Families Party, the Hispanic Democrats of Westchester, uh, the um, Hudson Valley Stonewall Democrats group, uh, and and many others. Um, And so that's been very meaningful and um, really given us more momentum.
0: So what are your chief concerns with the incumbent?
1: So, I guess first and foremost, it is a lack of vision, a lack of um, proactive and innovative um, approach to the DA's office. you know the, the the district attorney's office, like every prosecutor's office, has enormous power, both in terms of obviously wielding the power of the Uh, criminal law and subpoenas and and all that comes with that, but also in terms of being um, an office that, that can bring together different parties, law enforcement, community groups, religious groups, social service providers, to work on where our criminal justice system really is headed, which is violence prevention, addiction prevention. Uh, you know, obviously prosecutors do end up putting people in jail, that in prison. That is that is a fact of our, our system. But I think where we're headed in and, and my view certainly is that we need to try to minimize that and, and that needs to be um, saved for you know cases where it is really warranted, where we're talking about real violence, um, and that we need as much as possible to try to take a more proactive and innovative approach to law enforcement and trying to prevent crimes and uh, violence in the first place. And that that's gonna require a really uh, collaborative approach with many different stakeholders. And I think the DA, particularly in Westchester where we have literally uh, more than 40 different police departments, the county is one county, but every town and jurisdiction has its own police department. Uh, So you have to really be a uniter and someone to bring different um, groups together to, to work on some of these problems that are, are you know, obviously entrenched and, and been around for a long time. And um, we need forward-thinking leaders to do that. So that, that is my sort of overall criticism of the C A It's very much a sit-back-and-wait, old-school kind of uh, leader uh, that has no prosecutorial experience, um, which I think is a problem. I think that being, if you're going to lead prosecutors, I think you should be someone who's been in the trenches and done it. Um, I think it's sort of like asking the Chief of Surgery to train surgeons, having never been in the middle of an ER or you know, a surgery and had something gone wrong and known how to triage. I mean, that it's a little bit like that. and And so while we don't want the old school prosecutor mentality, I I feel more comfortable directing prosecutors when I had sat and talked to victim families who have lost someone and explained to them why it is that we're offering a plea agreement that they may not necessarily agree with or spoken to the victim of a crime um, and you know really really felt what what it, what it means to them to try to get justice and try to work with them on, um, you know, meaningful justice and, and, and maybe offering them some non-traditional uh, alternatives like restorative justice. Um, and, you know, also been a prosecutor who knew when to say, how, how scary it was to say, you know what, I think we made a mistake, but how important that is to do. So those are some of the things I want to hopefully mentor and teach to the prosecutors in that office. And I think having done it, I'm more prepared to do that. And then the the other problem I have with this district attorney is that um, right now this office really is not taking any comprehensive approach to trying to um, remedy what what are clear racial inequities in I mean most criminal justice systems and, and certainly here as well. I've never heard this district attorney acknowledge that that's an issue. I've never heard him pledge to work on it. I've put forth a whole host of policies to try and address racial inequities in our criminal justice system, to try to make the system more fair, to make sure that we don't have wrongful convictions. I mean, that it should be, frankly, the number one fear of any prosecutor. And I don't even hear this district attorney talking about it. And that that frightens me.
0: Well, we'll get into some of these issues in a moment. But um Kind of wanted to paint the picture. So tell us a bit about uh, Westchester County and what issues uh, it's facing. And uh, for those not familiar, where is Westchester? What's in it?
1: Mm-hmm. Sure. Well, so Westchester is um, it's, it's a suburban county, basically, outside of New York City. Um, the southern part of Westchester, it has a lot of... Uh, Towns and cities that that are a lot of, of commuter thought of as sort of commuter um, areas because a lot of people obviously live here uh, and and commute to New York City for work. Um, but but it's a very diverse county, and what I mean by that is it really is made up of wealthy suburban towns and then large cities that have a very diverse population, uh, just like other cities around the country. So. It's it's within New York State, but it's it's almost like its own mini state. It's almost a million people in population, so it's very, it's large. Um, the DA's office is kind of what I would characterize as, as medium size. It's obviously not the size of you know the Brooklyn District Attorney's office, but it is much larger than say one in upstate New York, like Orange County. Um, it has about 150 prosecutors plus investigators and staff. Um, And as I mentioned, there's over 40 police departments across um, Westchester County, um, as well as the county police, as well as the federal partners who do work very closely with, uh, you know, state and and county level, uh, especially here in Westchester, because the the geographic boundaries sort of um, don't matter as much, right? So, you know you can very often have an investigation or a crime that starts in a city like you know Mount Vernon uh, or Yonkers but you know ends up in a small suburban area like where I live um, Scarsdale and so you have very different types of uh, law enforcement working working together um, there is in terms of the types of crimes I mean again it's because we have big cities like Mount Vernon and Yonkers and Peekskill, you know we have um, traditional city type of crime uh, you know there there are, are obviously uh, gun violence there's gangs uh, there's narcotics dealing um, and uh, then we also have uh, what I call what is sex trafficking and human trafficking which is actually one of the, few rising areas of crime. I mean, overall, violent crime is down in Westchester as it is across New York, as it is, or before COVID, you know, largely across the country. And I think that's due to many different factors and that's that's a great thing, but it should allow prosecutors then to focus both on uh, more, uh, as we said, alternatives to incarceration and, and violence prevention, Um, but also focus their resources on the cases that truly do need, you know, deserve a prosecution Um, and, and human trafficking and sex trafficking is one of those areas that I've been trying to raise awareness about because I think it is a very misunderstood and and underestimated um, problem. Um, Of course we have domestic violence and unfortunately you know that is an area that we've we've seen uh, really rise during COVID. While the reporting of domestic violence incidents seems to be down, uh, for I guess obvious reasons because people are trapped at home often with their abusers, the actual incidents themselves are are going up, and we've had some tragic uh, violent cases here um, in, in a couple of instances in Westchester. So. Um, we also obviously have uh, a rise in hate crimes, um, you know, which I think we've seen across the country. We've seen it here in Westchester, particularly with respect to Jewish groups. I think fueled in part by the, uh, you know, the the white nationalist groups that are egged on by this president, in my view. Um, and uh, of course, we have environmental crimes, which have really gone unaddressed by this district attorney. We have public corruption issues, which have gone unaddressed by this district attorney. And that's another area that I really uh, would point to as distinguishing me from this district attorney that I I really prioritize uh, pursuing public corruption cases, whether that be elected officials, police officers, um, or, you know, any kind of public uh, figure or, uh, government employee, because I think that people who have the trust uh, of the uh, public uh, should be held to a, a very high standard. And so those are cases that are very important to me. And I plan to make the DA's office um, hopefully a model of integrity and ethics and and, and brings ethical reform uh, to the DA's office.
0: So... How has the COVID crisis impacted your campaign?
1: Uh, well, it's impacted it a lot. I mean, just like every area of life for everyone has been greatly impacted, it has impacted campaigning. I mean, I you know, if, if, if it weren't for COVID, I would be out and about uh, you know, probably all day and all evening at different events, meeting people, talking to people, uh, at this point, we'd be knocking on doors, uh, you know, all, all of that. So having rallies, um, we were doing some of that, you know, even back in uh, February and even into March a little bit before this really hit. Obviously, we're not doing that now. Um, so we're more reliant on. Mailings to people, uh, you know, we'll be doing TV ads. Uh, You have to reach people where they are, which is at home. Um, I am fortunate to have an amazing um, grassroots base um, of people who have volunteered and are volunteering uh, still, and maybe even more so, their time to do phone banking, uh, do postcard writing and set up virtual events, you know, we call them virtual meet and greets, um, and uh, just keep reaching out to different groups and different people.
0: Yeah, it's really interesting how this has really transformed all areas of society um, almost overnight.
1: Absolutely, absolutely.
0: So you've mentioned a bunch of issues that that you're running on. so let's let's bring up uh, a couple of things that i want to kind of highlight here you have concerns about ethics um in the da's office
1: mm-hmm. i do um and i'll give you a couple of examples so first of all you know the da's office is obviously the, D- the district attorney is an elected position um that does not mean it should be a political office. And in fact, I think you know I, I, what I, I was taught as a prosecutor from day one that politics and justice do not mix that those two should be kept as separate as possible. Um, it's why the office that I worked at in the Southern District has a, a history and a tradition of prosecuting Democrats, Republicans, you know it, it, it didn't matter. it wasn't about politics. it was about, uh who you know public trust it was about uh doing the right thing it was about the facts and the law so you know we see the absolute corruption of that in the president now and his attorney general um who i believe are using the justice system for political purposes so that needs to be sort of the warning sign and we need to do everything we can to at the at, at every other uh, institution to 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 keep those things separate and so for example while other district attorneys across new york and i imagine it's true in other parts of, of the country but i've, I've uh, surveyed the ones here in, in new york have firewalls between their campaigns their political campaigns and their uh staff who work on their justice issues and the district attorney business this da um, in Westchester has none, has no firewall between them. And in fact, he uses, his executive staff, or I shouldn't say uses, his executive staff actively has uh, gone to and campaigned on his behalf. And I just think that's completely inappropriate. I think it is a melding of the power of the office of the district attorney uh, with a political campaign. And I, I, that is inappropriate. Um, He takes campaign donations from people who work in the DA's office, which I think is inappropriate. And I have put limitations, voluntary limitations, on my political donations, campaign donations. He has none. So I am not taking campaign donations from elected officials uh, in our jurisdiction. I'm not taking campaign donations from police unions. And I am not taking campaign donations from defense attorneys who will have cases in front of my office, because I want to eliminate uh, conflicts of interest and potential conflicts of interest. I want the public to have faith in my decisions as being made on doing the right thing, the law, the facts the circumstances, not whether I'm doing something, you know, to get reelected or get elected. Um, I, I just, I, at the end of the day, think that that is uh, probably one of the most important things that um, uh, a prosecutor can, can give to the public, is faith in their decisions. doesn't mean everyone's always going to agree with your decision, but you want them to trust that it's coming from the right place. Um, because often DAs have to make very controversial decisions. So that is one way in which I'm starting to do this sort of ethics reform even before I get into the office. I've also pledged transparency. I I think it's pretty revolutionary transparency. Um, And that is part of the ethics reform is making information available to the public that right now would be incredibly hard to find like information about uh, real uh, racial uh, statistics on hiring. You know, what, what are the real numbers? This CA likes to go around saying he's doubled the number of minorities in the office, but we have absolutely no idea what that means because did he start with two minorities in the office or a hundred? I mean, it, it's a meaningless uh, and, and kind of campaign type slogan. I'm pledging to put real numbers out on a, on a yearly basis, um, as well as about the finances of the office, you know, how much forfeiture money is coming in, where is it being spent, um, and, and real information about arrest statistics and prosecution statistics. So who's getting arrested, who's getting prosecuted, and who is not? You know, wh- which cases are, are being declined and not followed through on? I think that's almost as important. Um, so that's some examples of some of the ways in which I hope to bring ethical reform and transparency to this uh, institution.
0: Now, with covid uh, what's become kind of the biggest issue now in the criminal justice world is kind of this mesh point between pretrial detention, pretrial release, and bail reform. So where do you stand on all that?
1: Well, um, so I mean, this was a very big issue here in New York uh, even before COVID. I mean, and this really, you know, a couple of months ago uh, in December, January was sort of one of the uh, hot issues, if you will, uh, because New York had, had just recently passed bail reform for the first time um, that eliminated cash bail on a lot of offenses for which it had previously been allowed. And, and the reason for that, which was absolutely necessary, was that we, we had people in New York State who were being detained pre trial uh, for crimes that did not, should not have warranted detention, but they simply couldn't afford to pay the amount of money that they were supposed to pay for bail. Um, so, so the idea was to eliminate the dependence as much as possible on cash bail, not make someone's detention or not detention dependent on whether or not they could afford to pay bail. I mean, that just ob- obviously makes no sense. So then was a lot of controversy once that was passed because people felt it had gone too far and there were too many people being uh, released who were dangerous. Um, there now has been a second wave of reform of, of those laws that has cut back on a, a little bit. Um, in other words, uh, there is cash bail now put in place for some of the categories like uh, second-degree robbery, where before there was no bail for that in the, in the reforms. Now now there is. Um, so so there have been some changes. But obviously, you know, it all comes to a head. The sort of issue of over-incarceration really came to a head with COVID um, because people very quickly saw the problem that was coming, which is if you have people uh, incarcerated who cannot really um they can't they can't social distance they can't even properly sanitize is is my understanding there's not enough soap there's not enough sanitizer and you have the corrections officers also uh you know going in and out and being put at risk themselves and uh you know it's just it was um really a a disaster in the making and i think some district attorneys responded to this um Quickly and put forth plans for uh, you know categories of people that can be released quickly. Um, for example, pretrial detainees who uh, had plea agreements pending, or uh, people who only had a few months left on their sentence, who are nonviolent offenders, uh, people who were in on technical parole violations. So you know those are just some examples that some of the DAs in New York put forth um, plans. Uh, pretty quickly. The Westchester DA did not, he did not put forth any kind of plan until uh, the end of April, I believe. Um, and even then, uh, you know, it was it was not a well-articulated plan. And by then, there were already infections, obviously, in the Westchester jails and prisons and corrections officers who had been uh, infected and, and were likely bringing it out to the community. So, um, you know, it's really I think highlighted two things. One is our overcrowded uh, jails and prisons, and the need to reduce that because it's, it's you know problems like this are going to happen again. And then second, the need for quick and um, effective leadership to take charge of the situation, see it coming, and try to act as quickly as possible.
0: You know, one of the more interesting things that was on um, a Zoom uh, yesterday with the uh, newly elected DA in San Francisco, and, and he raised an interesting point when, you know, the public health authorities basically said, look, if you want to avoid this disaster, and we've seen this at Rikers and we've seen it in Ohio and we've seen it some places here in California where where these uh, facilities are getting overrun with COVID because, because of all these problems. And he said when, when they went to try to uh, figure out, you know, how to get their numbers down, they looked at these cases and they're like, why are these people even in here? He, he, he mm-hmm. mentioned this one story Uh, This woman, she had no criminal record, she was convicted of a misdemeanor, and she had a high-risk pregnancy, and she was in custody. And and it's just like, why is this person there? She's not even a public safety threat. Uh, and, And it led to this whole questioning of, why are people in here? Why are we keeping people in here? Why are we holding people? What are your thoughts on that?
1: Yeah, well, look, I think that's what the New York State bail reform initiative have been trying to address, um, which is that we were way over incarcerating people for the wrong reasons. Right. They were there because they were incarcerated because bail was set. And, you know, it, it, even if it was, was not a dangerous crime or a real risk of flight, but but that was just what you did. You set a bail amount. And if the person couldn't pay it, well, they were in jail. And that, that just makes, it makes no sense from a public safety perspective, from a financial perspective. And it's obviously just not the right thing to do. People should not be in jail or in prison because they cannot afford to pay something. That That is literally allowing people to buy their way out of incarceration. And that's just wrong. So, you know, that has absolutely been the focus of the reforms. I think the process here in New York State is ongoing. I think, uh, you know, there was sort of the first wave of reforms. And then there were some tweaks to it, which were done sort of as COVID was really, uh, just in the past couple of months, as COVID was really um, taking hold. And so I, I don't think we're done yet with, with reforming it. But I think the focus needs to be on... Making sure that we are not over incarcerating. And part of that goes back to what you and I were talking about at the beginning, which is putting in place preventative measures, putting in place alternatives to incarceration programs, restorative justice programs, uh, making sure we have real reentry programs with services so that when people are incarcerated and they come out, there's a real risk of success or, 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 or chance of success so they, they won't reoffend. And, and you know, doing all of those things so that we can reduce the incarceration, um, but that we 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 focus on saving incarceration for cases where it is you know really uh, necessary and warranted. So, and, and
0: I don't and, think
1: I don't think we're fully there yet in terms of developing what that means in terms of legislation, at least here in New York.
0: And that's kind of where I was going to go with this is the. Big question, you know, aside from pretrial detention is mass incarceration and, you know, pretrial detention is kind of on the front end of that. On the back end of that is sentencing and prosecution. So what are your plans to reduce the people going into the system from the back end?
1: Well, I mean, I, th- I think it's really part of the same um, uh, approaches. You know, again, to the extent that people are incarcerated, you know, let's say for a gun possession type of Um, You know, first of all, do we have alternatives to incarceration programs that we can try where we uh, that have been successful in other jurisdictions where on a first arrest for a gun possession that, that does not involve any kind of violence that that we try something other than incarceration? Uh, we try a probationary sentence with supervision and certain standards that have to be met. Uh, are we providing, you know, mental health treatment, uh, substance abuse treatment, uh, you know, the, the kinds of services that, that will help people succeed? And then when, but when people are incarcerated, as they come out, what what support are we giving them? You know, right now we're so used to having the drug treatment, the job training, the uh, mental health treatment, to the extent we have it at all, it's in the prison. We need to get it out of the prisons. And this is where I was talking at the beginning about really needing someone to bring different stakeholders together. It's not just going to be the DA who's going to do all this. But the DA can be part of the fuel that that keeps gets this engine going and brings together all the different stakeholders. Because it, it, there's no way for any one uh, entity to do this alone. You need faith leaders, community leaders, service providers, reform advocates, uh, law enforcement. You really need to get different groups together to, to come up with the right and effective approaches to, uh, to try to make these things happen.
0: So let me ask you this, and this will be kind of the last question, and this is a difficult question, I think. Um, you know, I've been watching what's unfolded in Georgia over the last uh, week uh, with that case down there. What went wrong in that case? What did the prosecution do wrong?
1: Well, I mean, that case is such a glaring, just I think, out. I hope outlier, at least if, if we're talking about uh, New York, you know, but but I but I don't want to be so naive as to say it doesn't happen. But I mean, there you had a murder literally caught on tape. Now, we didn't see the recording until recently. But, you know, I, and, and frankly, I don't know, but I would like to know when the prosecution saw that recording, because it seemed to me that once that was available, that recording of, of see, literally seeing the murder taking place, The the defense, if you will, the justification that they were relying on was, well, they thought he was, you know, he had committed a crime. And even if you assume that was true for a moment, I mean, so what, right? Like that, it just seems to me that there was this rush to say, well, okay, this happened, but it was justified, and so therefore we're not going to prosecute it. But one, you know, there was no there was no uh, proof of that, and two, I I don't it does not seem to me that that would have been a proportionate response. And so, you know, I mean, this this seems to be a, yet another instance of uh, racism in the system of of people wanting to. Uh, protect someone who did something that likely was race based and um, making excuses for it and trying to find a way to avoid uh, prosecuting it. And fortunately, you know, the, the recording got out and there was enough of an outcry that that didn't happen, but, but it shouldn't require that. It should have come from an objective looking at the facts by the prosecutor, and that just does not seem to have happened here.
0: Well, what's even more crazy is that. So it goes to one prosecutor. The prosecutor uh, recuses herself because the guy was a retired uh, DA investigator, and, and so then it goes to a second prosecutor. And the second prosecutor must have looked at the vi- uh, at the video because uh, he concluded uh, in writing. He writes that. Uh, that they were in hot pursuit of a burglary uh, suspect with solid firsthand probable cause in their neighborhood. They were asking him to pull over. He didn't do it. Um, he comes at them, and in the course of defending themselves, they're justified in using deadly force. That was what they said.
1: Right.
0: Is that nuts?
1: <laughs> I mean, by, by my standards, yes um it 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 is and and there you know the the recusal issues here uh are uh also kind of baffling and and the fact that it was a former police officer i mean this gets back to you know in an extreme some of the points that i raised in the beginning about uh you know making sure that we have conflicts of interest Uh, protections put in place ahead of time you know so that the public can have faith in your decisions which again is is clearly not possible here
0: so June 23rd is your election or your primary election correct correct and is this going to be a mail ballot or or people going to be able to vote at the polls
1: uh, both the polls in New York will be open. There's some other important primaries that day here uh, in New York, a congressional primary for, uh, Nita Lowy's uh, seat. She's retiring, uh, congresswoman and, uh, some judicial races. Um, so the polls will be open, but, uh, Governor Cuomo has issued an executive order that everybody in New York State can vote by absentee ballot. So people can get, uh, they have to apply, send an application, uh, which they can download to um, uh, get the absentee ballot. I believe that application actually will also automatically be mailed to all registered uh, voters in New York and just claim on the absentee ballot once you get it, uh, fear of contracting COVID. And that has been authorized by uh, Governor Cuomo. And so people can vote by absentee, but they can also vote in person.
0: And if people want to learn more about your campaign, where would they go?
1: Uh, so my website is uh, nimi, Mimi M I M I Roka, R O C A H four D A dot com, and it's four F um, O R. And uh, yeah, please go to the website. I have my issues there with different policy proposals, which we you know touched on here. Uh, ways to contact the campaign. I'm uh, very active on Twitter at Mimi One. And uh, also have a Mimi Roca for DA Facebook page. So many different ways to reach us, find us, and uh, learn more.
0: Very good. Well, thank you so much for being on our show today.
1: Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. Really appreciate it. It's Great talking to you.
0: That was Mimi Roca. She is running for DA. the uh, The primary election will be June 23rd, but she's facing the incumbent in that primary, so that may well. Decide the election, June 23rd in New York and Westchester County. You've been listening to Everyday Injustice. I'm your host, David Greenwald. Join us again next time for more tales from the injustice system. Thank you to George Powell and Norman Mouse Quake Barrett for the use of our opening everyday injustice. You can see more of George's music at www.justiceforgeorgepowell.com That's Powell, all one word.com.